Thanks for checking out this sermon from Christ the King in Carrollton, Georgia, where our goal is to glorify God by making, training, and sending disciples to engage our neighbors and the nations with the gospel of Jesus. If you want to learn more about us, you can find us online at ctkcarrollton.com, or better yet, join us on a Sunday in Carrollton. Man, we are so super grateful for the work of the Lord. Um, Open up to Ephesians chapter 2. That's where we're going to be this morning. we're in this first series of the new year, and it has been a uh, it's been a real joy, man. Um, kind of, t- we talked about this before, but having taken a break and kind of working through some different passages and not really finding ourselves in this rhythm of sequential exposition, it's good to come back around a book and to plant roots, right? Um, and so, one thing that we're going to be doing each week, consequently, is we're going to be connecting back to what we have seen the previous week. Because Paul does an incredible job at doing this. Maybe you've read through the book of Ephesians before. Maybe this is your first real experience in, uh, in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Um, but, but what he does is really beautiful, the way that he, he just constructs this, this, this argument and this letter of encouragement um, to these people, uh, just communicating each week more and more of the character of Christ um, the work of God through his son, uh, just kind of unpacking the, the lives of the Ephesians. It's been a really beautiful start. Uh, and so we're turning a page this morning as we go into um, chapter 2. But, but as we turn the page, we do need to, as I'm stating now, we need to look back. And so what have we observed already? Okay, well, here's a, here's a bit of a backstory, right? In, in chapter 1, Paul discusses God's plan to adopt a people into his family. Uh, we came together this morning in this side room over here, and we're, we're actually going through a membership class right now. And we were talking about this morning the totality of the gospel, like all of the different ways that um, the gospel like transforms and, and, and the good news of Jesus and what that means for us as we live here and now in this world, getting to the, to the core of gospel work. And at the core is this desire from God to glorify himself, as Anna Denard said. Uh, this morning, and and to do so as we are brought into community with him and with one another. But there's this there's this community that he is that he is building. Paul is laying out this argument here in chapter one: God's plan to adopt a people, creating community for you and I with him, and for you and I with with one another. Right? It's what God is is doing a work. That God accomplishes through Christ that is validated by the presence of the Holy Spirit. How do we know that it's legit? Or how do we know this is what God's doing? How do we know that it took? Well, because we, we have the indwelling presence of the Spirit resulting in worship. right? Resulting in, in celebration as Paul shares with the Ephesians his prayer that they would know God. Not just know God or know of God, but that they would know God in a real experiential way and that in doing so would develop depth as it relates to the realization of the hope of their calling. What's another way we can say that? Well, we say it like this. What have you been saved for? Paul's going Paul's to kind of continue to expound upon this idea this morning, but, but we get an introduction in chapter 1. What have you been saved for? What have you been redeemed for? Well, here it is, right? Cliff Notes version. Um, to love Christ and to love one another. 
right? God glorifies himself as he creates within sinners who are now saved and being you know, transformed increasingly more and more into the likeness of Jesus, hearts that love Jesus and love one another. You've been saved to, to grow in greater intimacy with the Father as the Spirit, Ephesians chapter 1, produces wisdom, a work that involves participation from each member of the Trinity. In chapter 1, Paul closes with God's acting in relationship to Christ. He says this, he, he talks of Christ being raised from the dead and, and being seated at his right hand to rule with all authority and power, to rule with universal lordship. This is who Jesus is and this is how he, he rules. Right? He is sovereign and he is powerful. He does as the psalmist writes, as he pleases, exactly as he desires. Christ, whose, whose name is elevated above every name. Christ, whose name is elevated above every name, get this, in every age. The name of Jesus, right? The most important name. That's chapter one. As we move into chapters 2 and 3, we see Paul continuing to unpack the benefit and outworking of the Christian's adoption as he, that being God, acts on their behalf. Taking sinners, meriting judgment, and transforming them, transforming us into saints, or as one commentator described, and this is beautiful, trophies of his grace. God gives life to sinners. God gives life to sinners in Christ, raising us up to now sit with him. This is what Paul says in the first 10 verses of Ephesians chapter 2. So let's go there. Let's begin unpacking further what we have read already. Let's start with the first three verses. Verses 1 through 3, the natural human condition. We, we're going to see more of what we have been saved for. We get an introduction, as we've stated, in chapter 1. It continues to, to roll itself out in chapter 2. But Paul begins by reflecting back on and articulating super clearly the natural human condition. We are naturally dead to God. We are spiritually dead. And as we see in chapter 1, deserving of judgment. I want to present you with a question that I would really encourage you to make a note of. Right? Maybe you've got your, your notes function open on your phone. Maybe you're an old pen and paper person like, amen, I hear you. Make a note of this great question to just consider, not only as we kind of transition into chapter 2, but also just like daily reflection, producing within God's people a gratitude for him and his work. Producing within the skeptical heart, maybe greater consideration 
of the reality of God's existence and his great love for a people. And that question is, is this, how has the greatness and power of God affected your life? How has the greatness and power of God affected your life? Paul has just stated to the Ephesians his practice of regular prayer for them and their growth in Christ as he now turns his attention towards the outworking of God's work in them in verses 1 through 10. You have been saved, and he unpacks that in chapter 1. We, we see these, these big ideas, these beautiful ideas that serve to empower the people of God to go out and live boldly, right, on mission, in submission to him and his desire for our lives. He has elected us, right? He has adopted us. He has extended out of a kind and compassionate heart forgiveness to us. He has called us into the fold. We know because Jesus says this, that the sheep know the voice of the shepherd. Jesus is our good shepherd. He, He calls us and we come. Now Paul begins to turn his attention towards the outworking of God's movement in them. You've been saved, now what is the question? Look at where he begins in verse 2. Paul says this, he says, And you were dead. Man, what a, what a solid place to begin, right? I mean, we really ratcheted up the encouragement on that one, didn't we, Paul? You were dead. Obviously, it goes without stating, but let's, let's state the obvious. Right? Paul is here not emphasizing their physical condition, but he's talking about a spiritual one, isn't he? You were dead. You were blind. You were alienated from God. You were separated from him. He's reflecting back on a, on, a, on, a, on a reality, a previous condition for the Ephesians specifically. I want us to think for a moment about what comes along with this spiritual death. I want us to diagnose our previous condition or previous relationship, the condition of our relationship previously with God. I want us to diagnose that, okay? I want us to to come around that because that's what Paul's doing here. He's coming around this. He's reflecting back on this previous reality, and he's encouraging consideration. A consideration that, by the way, is going to result in great adoration and worship of God. Right? He's, going to, he's going to highlight and speak towards the, the natural condition of man and our separation, our relationship with God. And then he's going to talk about the work of God to transform this relationship. With death comes total disinterest. With death comes total disinterest in any type of connection or positive relationship with the creator. And as a result, there is a division. 
as those who are physically dead cannot communicate with the living, one commentator writes, so also those who are spiritually dead cannot communicate with the eternal living God and thus are separated from him. They are lost and in need of being found. They are dead and need to be made alive. The first thing that I want to do this morning is to come around this idea that there is no such thing as neutrality or apathy when it comes to our relationship with God. At least not in the sense that many understand neutrality and apathy. Hang with me for a minute. We're going to unpack this, okay? Our faith does not allow for true objective indifference, What does it look like to be a Christian? What have you been saved for? Let's kind of reflect back and let's say this first, that to be a Christian, if you're in this room and you you say, man, like I I have believed on Jesus, like I have believed the gospel, like I've cast my burdens and my shame and my anxiety upon Christ, I have been made new, my heart has been made to beat for him, I give myself solely to him and his desire for my life as it is communicated in his word. Know this, that there is no such thing as indifference for the Christian. To be spiritually neutral would be to say, well, God may be real. But to be honest, I'm not very concerned about it. In fact, if you ask me, I would say that, like, I'm a Christian, but, like, I'm really not too concerned with, like, who God is or, or knowing him more or, or living in submission to his will for my life. I may not identify as, as hostile, right? I certainly don't have anything, like, against God. I don't have anything against the Bible. I don't have anything against his people. But I certainly wouldn't, wouldn't identify myself as, like, a, a truly committed follower of Jesus. I think that this is a distinction that we make that the Bible leaves no room for. Does that make sense? Maybe this is your position this morning, right? Or maybe this is the position of someone that you know and love and and care for. If this is your position or this is the position of someone that you know, you probably see yourself or they see themselves as less aggressive towards God, given that they would not say that I'm hostile. I'm not hostile. I'm just not thinking about God. I'm just not too worried about God. Let's be clear, this is not the way that our relationship with God works. This isn't the way the Christian now relates with the Creator. In your former condition, there is only aggression. There's no such thing as objective. There's no such thing as neutral. There's no such thing as like just apathetic. right? Understand and diagnose. Right, that there is there is either right like aggression towards God, regardless of what you might identify or say, right? Or there is love for God, which is identifiable by certain marks, right? That flow out of a heart that has been so transformed, right? Are we following along? Are you guys with me so far, right? Like we're 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 slaying, we're putting to death this idea that you can just live objectively in relationship to God. It's not a thing. 
Or you haven't been saved for that as we kind of come back around this question. There is, there is only aggression, right? If you do not know Jesus, right? If you do not like repent of your sin and look to and cling to Christ, if you don't look to and trust to him and as the only source of light and life and restoration and fellowship, then you are at war with God. You have disdain of the name of the Lord. Paul lays this out. You were dead, and this is what it looks like to be dead. Like to be spiritually dead. It's to be blind. It's to be aggressive, even if you wouldn't identify yourself as aggressive. I'm not aggressive. Let's understand the way that the relationship with God works, the way that it, the way that it functions. There is only fellowship and aggression. Those are the only two, those are the only two options. Where does this condition come from? Well, we, we see it. Paul identifies it. He says that this is a condition that stems from trespass and sin. And he says it right here in Ephesians chapter 2, that, that you were dead. Why? Well, because of your trespasses and your sins. Your condition stems from your sin and that which consequently directs your life. Paul is reflecting back on a previous season as he pens this letter. And he's, he's pointing out that sin was the reason for their, their relationship with God existing in such a state. Paul makes the, the same observation in his letter to the Colossians. You can read it in Colossians 2 verse 13 when he again connects sin and death. These two things are, are connected, right? They exist. They are married together. This is an idea that's introduced in both theory and reality in the first three chapters of Genesis. We're going all the way back to the beginning. What does God say? He he lays forth this warning to creation, doesn't he? To to man and woman. He says, here's the deal, right? Like, like here is is the, the display of my kindness and generosity to you, my love for you. Here's my instruction for your life. Hey, stay away from this tree, right? Don't taste. Do not take. For if you do, what will happen? You're smart people, right? It's like first first couple pages. You'll die. This is the theory, right? The theory is like sin brings about death. Disobedience brings about death. We see it like manifest there in those first few chapters though, don't we? Like we see death enter into the scene, physical death observable very quickly, spiritual separation, alienation. Right there in the first three chapters. This is what Paul is talking about. Sin results in death, a spiritual state that comes to a head in a physical experience. You're separated, and then you die. 
This is what he means. This is what Paul means when he says to the Ephesians that they they once walked in these things. Verse 2, he's speaking of that which characterized their existence as they what? As they followed the course of this world. This is what it looked like for you to live this way. You were dead. As a result of your sin and trespasses, you followed the course of the world. You followed the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom, Paul says, and this is incredible, we all once lived. Your life was defined, Paul says. Not by your current Love for Christ or your love for one another, chapter 1, verses 15 through 23, which we spent a ton of time talking about last week. Like your life was not defined by that. Your life was not driven by that, but instead by your sinful desires. Your life was driven by wisdom, but not wisdom from above. It was driven by wisdom from, wisdom from below, self-benefiting. Self-celebrating, leading towards a self-absorbed purpose. This is what Paul is saying. This is who you were, right? And this is how you lived. But then he does this. He, He drastically expands the scope. He expands the scope because he begins in the beginning and he says, you. Now, who is he talking to? This is just like, like simple Bible reading, 1101. This is observation principle here. Who is you? Who is Paul writing to here? The Ephesians. Everybody's like, I don't know. I feel like this is too easy. Too low hanging of a fruit. I'm going to get it wrong. The Ephesians. He's writing to the Ephesians, isn't he? And he says in verse 1 of chapter 2, you, you were dead. So what is he saying? Well, he's identifying The Ephesians specifically, you Gentile Ephesians, you were dead in your sin and trespasses. This was your condition. But then as we continue reading, we see the scope broaden. Because what what does he say? He says, this is who you were. This is how you lived. But it's not only you. But it's all of us. Paul takes a, a moment and he, he identifies with the natural condition of the Ephesians. You were dead following the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. This is who you were and this is how you were living your life. But you weren't alone in that. For I was I was right there, lockstep. Right? We, were, we were with you. All of us. Carrying out the desires of what? The desires of God? No. That's not what Paul says, is it? He doesn't say that you were following or carrying out the desires of God. No, he says you were, you were carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, the flesh, right? Which is corrupt by nature. Naturally, here it is, right? By nature, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Spiritual death and separation is not reserved for a particular person or people. Let me say that one more time, because this is hugely important. 
it impacts the way that, that we see ourselves in this room. It impacts the way that we see those who are, who are outside of this room this morning, right? Spiritual death separation is not reserved for a particular person or people to the neglect of another. Regardless of, of, of who you are, right, or where you are, where you come from, man, your former life, Paul writes, is one of disobedience. A life that we are all able to identify with, both Gentile and Jew. Know of hearts hardened towards God, wills and passions bent Inward, as opposed to upward, subject to the flesh. Verse 2, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind by nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And this is so helpful, <laughs> okay? This is so helpful for, for understanding who we are so that we can best understand who God is. Like we've got we've to we've kind of like understand the relationship between this dichotomy. How it works together. We understand who God is and and understanding who God is provides insight into who we are. And then understanding who we are then provides greater insight into who God is. Man, it's just this big circle, isn't it? And so for those of us in this room this morning, like it's helpful for us to, as Paul does here, reflect back on a natural condition, a previous condition. If you're here this morning and you know Jesus, praise God. Amen. But let's not forget who we were. Let's not forget where we were because understanding that and coming to grips with that and being able to articulate that is only going to serve to to sweeten what we observe as this this corner is turned in verse 4. There's this real need to to, to understand and to grasp and to comprehend in order that our worship, in order that our worship and enjoyment of God might be most, most, most natural and authentic and informed. But it's not just that, right? It's not just, okay, well, like, let me understand who I am, who I was, so that I can better understand who God is and what he's done that is now going to produce within me a heart of of true, genuine, authentic worship, which benefits us here, right? And it shapes our practice here in this room as we sing songs together, as we greet one another, and, I mean, all of these things. But, But let's consider this reality as we go out into the world as the people of God Committed to mission, right? Like, let's understand that, that man, we, were, we were hardened and, and lost and separated and hostile and aggressive towards God. And God extended compassion and kindness and mercy, softened our hearts. And he called us into fellowship. He adopted us into the family. He elected us and saved us. So that as we go out into the world, man, we go out as an informed people. We grasp the power of the gospel. We talked about two weeks ago as we began this series in Ephesians. We said, listen, man, like I am under, I'm under no illusion. Like I cast myself solely upon the sovereignty of God. And because that is true, my belief is that God shapes and informs and moves. He brings people into this place who, who don't know him, who are far from him, who are aggressive towards him. And through the, the proclamation of the word and the work of the spirit, he softens the heart. He brings into the family. Not only that, he has placed you where you are in this season so that you might be about the same work. Why? Well, because, man, you're saints, you're missionaries, you're ambassadors, 
trophies of grace. You go into your workplace and you, you rub elbows with the teller next to you. Although that's a poor example because you guys have those little, those little cube things, right? So you can't rub elbows, right? You should get the picture, right? We understand what this looks like. You, you go in and you go, man, we're confident that this is who God is and this is the way that he works and, and he can save anybody. does so through the power of the gospel. He does so through the power of the gospel. Man, in the same way in which the prodigal son of Luke 15 was presumed dead. Man, he was very much alive. Returned home in brokenness and humility only to be received and restored as a son to a very very, very good father. Prodigals. Returning home. Restored and received by a good, good father. This is your condition. Paul does something so beautiful here, man. So helpful. Paul is, is comfortable going back and, and articulating a past state is who you were. <clears throat> you were dead. You were separated. You were alienated. He's comfortable going back there. But notice what Paul doesn't do. <clears throat> Excuse me. He doesn't celebrate that, does he? Like he, doesn't, he doesn't go back and, and look fondly upon this season of separation. He understands that it's there. But he doesn't go back and go, man, like, freshman year of college was insane. Right? That was so wild. Can you believe all that? That's not what it sounds like. Too often, that's what it sounds like. Instead, he looks back and he acknowledges the condition. He's able to clearly articulate it. We're all brought low. Right? By, by nature of reflection, we're, we're brought low. Like we're, we're all down here, okay? Wow, golly, man, it's heavy. It's weighty. I'm feeling that. I'm remembering that. And then we turn the corner. Look with me at verse 4. Two words. Man, two words that to some extent, like, I mean, they just summarize the, the whole biblical narrative, don't they? But God. Right, but God doing, doing as he, as he desire, desires, transforms our condition. We move, right? We move from this natural human condition, dead to God, to a, to a new condition. Alive in God. We've been presented with the hopelessness of verses 1 through 3. Are you guys still with me? Okay, we're still here. The hopelessness of our, of our, of our previous condition. Followed by a celebration. Of his divine intervention. This is who you were, but God. But God being rich in mercy. 
Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with who? With who? With Christ. He's made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. God has made you a new person. God has made you a new person. Or you are are new now. The old has, has passed away. Right? It's been it's been buried. Like of course there are still these these residuals, right? Like we still feel the residue. We still feel the residual. Like life is real. Many of you are are struggling. We're not unfamiliar with these realities. But there is newness. There is there is hope. By grace you have been saved. The essence of sin, Timothy Keller writes is us putting ourselves where only God should be. At the center of our lives, on the throne of our lives, what then is salvation? What then is salvation? It's God putting himself where we deserve to be, on the cross. And because Jesus went and took our seat, we can now sit in his. This is Paul's statement in verse 6 as he expresses the Christian's new position in grace. Not only are you a new person, okay? You're a new person. You're a new creation, but you have a new position as well. You have a new position. Look with me at verse 6. God has raised us up. We were dead. We were alienated. We were aggressive. We were hostile. But now in Christ, we've been raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You go, "Well, well, wait a minute. Like I'm still here. Like I'm seated here. How am I seated here and seated there at the same time? Like, how does that work? When we talk about the the assuredness of what God is doing, of what he has accomplished and what he is accomplishing. And our fellowship, our eternal fellowship with the king is certain. You've been rescued. You've been been saved. You've been made alive. And now you have been seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You can take confidence, man, whatever happens to you in this world. Paul Paul can say this to the Ephesians and you and I can glean from it. Whatever happens to you in this world, you can move forward in confidence, okay? You can move forward in confidence knowing that, that nothing, nothing will ultimately frustrate the plan of God. You are, as you are sitting here now, seated with him. That's how certain it is. And Paul's in, he's encouraging, he's creating, he's building, right? It's almost as though he's he's just building this, this foundation, 
right? This foundation of, of truth that serves to encourage the Christian. Why have we been saved? To glorify God. What does that look like? Man, we are seated now with him. We have a new position in grace. Not only that, but we have a new purpose in light of grace. Look with me at verse 7. So that in the coming ages, what is God accomplishing? Here's what he's accomplishing. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So that he might continue. You've been saved so that he might continue in the ages to come to display his grace to you in Christ. Again and again and again and again. We're growing in this knowledge, this realization of the love of God and the power of the gospel and his great grace and kindness observable through the coming, submission, substitution, and resurrection of our King. We have a new position. We have a new purpose. And then he closes out with this explanation. Look with me at verse 8. We're going to read 8, 9, and 10 together as we kind of begin to round this thing out and land. How have we been saved? How has this happened? Man, it's a punctuation mark, isn't it? For by grace you have been saved. Through what? Through work? Through merit? Through your own strength? Through your own ability? No. Through faith. Through faith. And rest assured, Paul says, man, rest assured this is not your doing. This is not your doing, but it is, a, it is the gift of God. It's not the result of works so that none of us are able to boast. We can't say, man, we did it. We got it together. We've got it going on. We killed this idea week one. Do you remember this? Week one, we said, like, like this is, we do not move forward, like, with big heads as though we are, like, just sharp enough as to where we've grasped something that everybody else seems to have missed. No, it is, it is no boasting of our own that we move out in. Verse 10, we are his workmanship. We are, we are evidences of his power. We are evidences of his work. We are evidences of his goodness. We are evidences of his kindness. Are we getting this? Like, are we coming around this? Is this helpful? Created in Christ Jesus. For what? For what purpose? Well, for, for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You have been saved for a purpose. Remember, we asked the question in the very beginning, right? Like, like, what is this all about? Like, why have I been rescued? Why have I been redeemed? Why am I still here? And the Lord says, as the Spirit moves, inspiring Paul's writing here in his letter to the Ephesians, he says, You have been saved by grace through faith. You are his workmanship. You were created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared long ago that we should walk in them. And that in doing so, again, trophying his grace. The character of God 
the kindness of God, the compassion of God, the mercy of God, the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice is observable through his people, through you, right? And through me, through us. These are, these are good works that, that God has, has ordained that we might walk in them. As he seasons and flavors this world, as he, as he preserves it on this trajectory towards a recreation and an internal enjoyment of him. It is all of grace that the sinner is delivered from their desperate, separated condition and reunited with God. It's all of grace, right? It's, it's all of grace that this has happened, right? It's all grace that we've been reunited with God. It's all of grace that we are reunited truly with one another as we were intended. We are, Paul writes, the workmanship of God. God gives us a life. That sounds really simple, doesn't it? God gives us life. God gives us life. He gives life to sinners in Christ and he raises us up so that we now might sit with him. He sends us out into the world, empowered by the Spirit, to walk in good works that he has prepared beforehand, that he might continue to display his goodness and glory as it it covers the globe. Our work is purposeful. Our relationships are purposeful. Our rhythms are purposeful. Our friendships are purposeful. Our marriages are purposeful. Our sufferings are purposeful. Our joys. You guys are fought. You getting the, I don't need to say it again. We're getting it, right? They're purposeful. This, this bottle this bottle, man, it's purposeful. These works and these practices, they don't, they don't save us, but they, they speak through this, this megaphone of human existence of God's goodness and grace to the world. Living as we, as we were created to. This recreated act that's taking place. We are made new and now we move out into the world living as we were created to. What a beautiful picture. Speaking so clearly, so clearly of, of who God is. What does Paul want his readers here to do? We're kind of coming around this authorial intent as we close out. What does Paul want his readers to do? They're, they're Christians, right? And like they're loving Jesus and they're loving one another really well. Man, he's, he's just taking them back and he's going, let's be reminded how all of this works. Let's be reminded how all of this happens. I think he's, he's calling the Ephesians around this, like, yes, like, yes, absolutely. It's like this point of affirmation. We're uniting with one another around these common ideas. It's the same way that we are this morning. Like, we, we hear this and we go, yes, like, we are all on the same page. We recognize it is all of grace. We recognize that our relationships are purposeful. We recognize that there is an intent and practice that we move forward intentionally into. And we do so all because we have been rescued through the finished work of a crucified king who provides purpose to everything else that we do. 
Man, as we close out, again, what a clear picture of, of what it looks like to, to be brought into fellowship with God. How this happens, right? So, so there's, there's just loads here that we take with us to communicate with our, our friends and our family members and our neighbors who don't know Jesus. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, like you, you have observed through Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, his kindness and compassion. God's kindness and compassion working itself out in and through Christ. You come around these ideas. Believe on Christ. Embrace the power of the gospel. Believe in purpose. We've been saved for a reason. And Paul lays that out eloquently in the first 10 verses of Ephesians 2. Let's consider these realities as we, as we come to the table. Fellowshipping with one another. Reminded of our fellowship with God. Man, what good news. Lord, we are grateful that you are a kind, kind God who loves us and saves us. You are a just God. You're a holy God, and and we are worthy of, of only alienation. But you determined in yourself in eternity past, to save for yourself a, a people. Speaking of, of who you are, help us to celebrate these truths. Help us to celebrate this reality this morning that we are, that we are called we are rescued, and it is not our work, but it is, it is yours. We come to these tables this morning, not because of our own personal merit, but because of what Christ has done. We celebrate the hope of the resurrection this morning and the, and the, and the future benefit and, 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 uh, and, and possession of these gifts that you have secured in yourself. Help us to celebrate well. Help us to sing well as we come to the table. We love you, and we're grateful for your love for us. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.